First Church Charlotte. All right. Well, praise the Lord, everybody, and welcome. Uh, tonight, we wrap up our study with the Apostle Paul. And oh, what a time we've had in terms of looking at his life from him being uh, an apostle, a philosopher, a missionary, a writer, a martyr. Um, just a fascinating life. So tonight, uh, this is my third and perhaps final um, Bible study or review of the life and adventures in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Um, we'll have a, a brief moment of prayer um, right now. If I'll ask Sister Venice, if you would pray for pray for us, that the Lord would bless our time here together. Praise the Lord, everyone. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Thank the Lord for a wonderful day. Lord God, thank you for, for keeping us safely, Lord God. Whatever our activities were today, Lord God, I believe that you have brought everyone back to their home and everyone is right now in their home. Thank you for that mercy. It is a gift, Lord God, hallelujah, to be really, to leave our homes and return. Praise God. We thank you for that blessing, Lord God, because I know there, there is someone out there that that's not their fate tonight, but we wanted that you will let your mercy flow over that person, that, that home. Lord God, thank you for everyone who has joined tonight, Lord God. You are so wonderful and you are so great. Thank you for your word. Your word makes our lives richer. It helps us to walk. It helps us, oh God, to, to stand before you and to know you through your word, oh God. I pray for our teacher tonight. Anoint his lips of clay, everything that, oh God, you have downloaded in his spirit tonight about the Apostle Paul and what we have received thus far. Thank you, Lord God. Bless those. I pray for those who are sick in body. You see and you know them, oh Lord God. I pray that you will touch them in the name of Jesus Christ. Bless everyone, their families tonight as we gather around, oh God, to hear the word. Let every, oh God, let your presence saturate every home tonight, Lord God, every home, oh God, hallelujah, and every heart. We give you thanks for your word. Bless us, I pray. Help us to receive it. Let not the enemy block it from our hearts and mind and our spirits tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so very much, my dear sweet wife. Um, so, yes, um, Let's see if we can wrap up Paul tonight. And um, and if you guys have questions, you can go ahead and ask while we're going or you can keep them to the end of the study. But uh, I really have just been enjoying uh, this time that we spent together. Um, all right, let's begin. So Apostle Paul is often considered to be the most important person after Jesus in the history of Christianity, certainly the New Testament church. His letters, also called epistles, have, have had an enormous influence on Christian theology, especially in the relationships between Father, the Father, and the Son, Jesus, of course. And of course, he, he addresses the mystery of the human relationship with the divine, and he deals with that quite thoroughly in his letters. And we are appreciative of that because it is through Paul's writing uh, that we get a good sense of 
what we call, what I like to call, what many Bible schools call systematic theology, right? How we have come into relationship with God, how we are saved, and how we will be taken back out of here. This whole process of systematic theology is is thanks to Paul. He has given us perhaps the most complete rendering of that in all of scripture. Paul played a crucial role in the development of Christianity away from its parent, its Jewish parent, right? And although he held that Jews and Gentiles were alike and called to be transformed into one one fellowship in Christ, his is primary mission was largely focused on the conversion of the Gentile people. And, if, and eventually, as we now have as a fact, Christianity would now or have eventually become largely a Gentile religion. Uh, you could call it that, right? Um, Paul, like all other Jews, was a monotheist, meaning that he believed in one singular God. Not three, not two, not in multiples like other religious uh, belief systems. He firmly believed that God, the God of Israel, was that one true God that created the heavens and the earth. But from his writings, we learn that he also believed that the universe had multiple levels, multiple levels of spiritual beings. And in fact, um, <laughs> we read in Philippians chapter number two, verse 10, that he says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So, so he refers to a place under the earth that uh, very few others refer to in scripture. He also refers to uh, a third heaven, the assumption there being a first, second, and of course, a third. He refers to a place called paradise in second Corinthians chapter number 12, one through four. He refers to beings called angels and principalities that uh, have powers. He refers to those we call rulers of darkness and demons in Romans 8 and 38 and in first Corinthians 15. He also is recognized, uh, uh, he has recognized the leader of these forces of darkness um, as someone he calls both Satan in 1 Corinthians 5 and 5 and 1 Corinthians 7 and 5 and the God, small g, of this world in 2 Corinthians 4 and 4. The reason why I'm taking the time to, to go through some of these specific references is because it is through Paul that we learn some of these things. Uh, no other writer of the New Testament gave us specific names and, and, and detail concerning some of these things. And so we have Paul to thank for not only two thirds of the New Testament, but for a lot of what we believe and the things we refer to in our worship of God and our rejection of the devil. From the moment he became a believer in Christ, after the Lord smacked him down on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter number nine, Paul's life immediately began to change. 
began to transform from that of a Christian killing Pharisee. You remember uh, he was going to take prisoners on his way to Damascus when the Lord interrupted his trip, right? From a Christian killing Pharisee to a globetrotting Christian missionary. And, and that is a, a transition or maybe I should say a transformation that we too must undergo uh, a similar transformation as we walk day by day with the Lord. Uh, now, your change may be different from mine. Your change may not be as dramatic as Paul's, um, but it's going to have to happen. If, in fact, you have met the Lord Jesus Christ, if you truly have met him, no one has met the Lord and have remained the same. No one. And so if you have have met Jesus, if he really has taken up residence in your soul, in your heart, in your mind, it will result in you being changed. And, and maybe your name is not going to be changed. Like his name wasn't really changed from Saul to Paul. I explained that last week. Uh, Paul is just the Greek version of his Hebrew name, Saul, right? So your name might not be changed, but your purpose will. Your purpose will, and God will direct or redirect you into your true purpose towards serving the kingdom of God, right? Serving the kingdom of God. Now, right now, if I were to call on you, you may not know exactly where you fit in First Church at the moment or in the church at large, but it is a fact that the Lord has carved out a spot for you. A place where you can contribute your gifts and your callings, your talents, um, whether it's a minister. You know, the other day I, I went to um, celebrate recovery and um, I participated in that meeting and discovered a, a whole new gift of one of my brothers, right? I didn't know that before, but he happens to be quite wonderful at teaching and, and making um, his points clear. And that was Brother Reggie. Um, whether you, you are called to be a minister, a helper, a preacher, a missionary, even a greeter at the church door, maybe you're called to be a praise singer or a prayer warrior, a band member, a social media influencer. That's a new one. Or maybe you enjoy behind working behind the scenes. You could be one of the gurus working on our website or one of the techies working on the sound or the camera or the video systems. You have a part to play in the kingdom of God is what I'm saying. Whatever your skills are, if you would give them to the kingdom, I would encourage you that you find a place to fit. In fact, that's one of the goals of, of small groups is, is, is finding your fit, finding a place where you can lend your gifts and callings to the kingdom of God. Does that make sense, everybody? I hope it does. I hope. Now, while, um, while Jesus did not give Saul a new name, he did give him a new purpose, as I mentioned. One that redefined and redirected his life and his passions. Uh, instead of continuing to persecute Christians, Paul was called to be himself persecuted as one of them. 
his zeal did not diminish. His, his enthusiasm for the one God did not uh, go away. It was simply redirected to serve the one true and living God when he met him on the, the Damascus Road. Before that, he didn't know him. And when he said, uh, Lord, Lord, who art thou? When, when the voice spoke to him out of the clouds, out of the heavens, and, and the answer came back, I am Jesus, Paul, who you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the pricks, right? And when he realized that, he grabbed it with both hands because the Lord struck him, blinded him, and told him where to go uh, to meet someone that would lay hands on him. He would receive his sight. He would receive the Holy Ghost, etc. So, so once you meet God, just like Paul here, your, your purpose will perhaps come into sharper focus. You will be given new orders, more than likely, in terms of how God wants to redirect your purpose and your passions and your skill sets. And I, I expect that if you have not yet met the Lord, when you do, this will become... Uh, a really nice uh, new paragraph in your life, right? Now for Paul, despite never actually uh, seeing Jesus, at least meeting him uh, as far as the text is concerned, um, he never really met Jesus face to face except for on the Damascus Road, right? But Paul arguably contributed more to the growth of the Christian movement, as I mentioned, than any other apostle, perhaps even including Peter, right? Because of his writings. We have his writings that has formed a, a giant part of our Christian literature, right? He laid the foundations for missions work. We now send our our missionaries out on missions work into the far reaches of the world as a um, model of what the apostle paul did right um he he made three possibly four significant missionary journeys to the ancient near east and other countries in um, Europe and then Mesopotamia, right? And so we have that, we have Paul to thank for that. Um, and through his, his, his mode, his method of evangelism, we now have um, a, a, a model that we can follow, a way to evangelize that we can look to and say, Paul started this and we are continuing in his model. He gave us a model for discipleship. We can study his life and look um, at how he persevered even through suffering. And for the Christians who knew him, and for every believer today who studies him, we have a great debt. We owe Paul a great debt. Now, as I mentioned last week, during his ministry, the Apostle Paul personality was, was um, one I would describe as probably a little bit antagonistic. He was a little uncompromising. 
And as a result, he made a lot of people very mad at him. Mad enough that on six specific occasions that I will review here in a minute in the book of Acts, the Jews and even some Gentiles made specific plans to kill him, to murder him. And at one of those times, they stoned him half to death, the Bible tells us, and left, a, left him outside of the gate of the city in Jerusalem. So, only counting the times that I could actually find in the Bible, I'll give you some examples of where they tried to kill the Apostle Paul. Not just harm him, right, or attack him. These were instances where they they planned to kill him. Now, you have to think about this for a moment, right? Think about a man of God traveling around um, and people actually planning to kill him. The only person that I can think about modern times right now is is someone like Dr. King, who received several um, threats of his on his life, and still he continued to to travel and to do what he thought was was God's work, God's will, is what he said. Um, so the first one was in Damascus, just after his conversion on the road. Uh, Paul began preaching in the, the synagogues in Damascus. Um, and after several days, just several days, the people there began to plan to kill him. Um, and they watched, the Bible says, they watched the gates of the city day and night that they might discover him. And finally, in Acts chapter number nine, verse 23 to 25, we, we read a funny story where his, his followers had to smuggle him in and out of the city in a basket. Um, and I heard one preacher said to this one time that, uh, that Paul was officially the first basket case in the Bible. I, ch I chuckled when I heard that. <laughs> Uh, the second one was in the, in Jerusalem. So the first one was in Damascus. Second one was in Jerusalem. When when Paul had left Damascus and he was going to Jerusalem, he, he tried to join with the other disciples that were there. But as soon as he got there, he began debating with them. And some, some of them were Hellenistic Jews. These are Jews who, who mixed the Jewish faith with elements of the Greek culture. And if you know anything about Greek culture, right, they, they, they were polytheistic, right? They, they believed in many gods. And the Jews, of course, believe only in one God. And so this began with the conquest of Jerusalem by Alexander the Great. The cultures began to mix and, and there were always tensions. So the Greeks, the polytheistic Greeks, they believed in, in Zeus and Apollos and Poseidon and Aphrodite and Artemis and Hermes and Dionysus, etc. They, they, they were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. If you, you and your wife couldn't have a child, you'd go pray to the God of fertility, right? If you um, were having another problem, you would go pray specifically to that God, right? Well, that is in complete opposition to the one God of the Jewish faith and, of course, also the Christian faith, right? And Paul began to debate with them the oneness of God. So this is why they tried to kill him. Right. And of course, his friends once again smuggled him to Caesarea Philippi and then found him a trip home to Tarsus. This is described in Acts 9, 26 through 30. The third time was at Iconium. 
Paul and Barnabas were spending a long time in our in Iconium and the city became divided because of his teaching. Some people supported them and then others other others hated them. The Jews and the Gentiles again started plotting to stone him. And when Paul and Barnabas found out, they fled to Lystra. This is described in Acts 14, verses 4 through 6. Now, he arrives in Lystra. This is the fourth, fourth time. Uh, he healed a man in Lystra. Miraculous, right? People thought he and Barnabas were gods, right? They thought, in fact, they were Zeus and Hermes and attempted to sacrifice to them. But then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and, cons and convinced this crowd to actually stone just Paul. They thought they had killed him. This is when they left him outside the city gate. But miraculously, he survived. He and Barnabas collected themselves and then left. This is discussed or described in Acts 14, verses 8 through 12, 20. Back in Jerusalem again, Paul insults the high priest and sparked an intense theological debate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And if you don't know the difference between those two groups, the Sadducees uh, did not believe in the resurrection. And of course, uh, the other branch of Christianity or Judaism believed in the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection as, as Christians because Jesus rose from the dead, right? Now, a group of, a Bible says, a group of 40 men took a vow not to eat or drink until they killed Paul. This is described, uh, you'll find this in Acts 23, verses 12 and 13. So their plan was to have a centurion send Paul to the Sanhedrin for questioning. And then on his way there, they would capture him and kill him. But someone warned the centurion of this plan, and instead, he rounded up nearly 500 soldiers to take Paul to the governor in Caesarea. And finally, um, in Caesarea, years later, Paul was still being held prisoner there, right? And there was a new proconsul, a new leader by the name of Festus. Portius Festus, he was in charge. He, let's call him the governor, right? Paul's accusers requested um, that Paul be sent back to Jerusalem, for they were now uh, preparing to ambush and kill him along the way, Acts 25.3. But Festus refused and told them to make their case here in Caesarea, where Paul used his privilege as a Roman citizen to make a bold request to Caesar so that Caesar would hear his case personally. And when Paul was first imprisoned in Caesarea Philippi, he made his appeal to Governor Felix, then waited another two years in prison with no progress. Felix, the Bible says, strung him along because he wanted the Jews to like him, right? to like Felix, the governor, and he hoped Paul would, would give him a bribe. Uh, but Portius Festus was succeeded uh, Felix, and after hearing Paul defend himself, he said to Paul, uh, are you willing to stand trial in Jerusalem? 
Uh, so tired of the case dragging on to appease his Jewish accusers, Paul claimed his right as a Roman citizen and directly appealed to Caesar. We read this in Acts 25. He writes, quote, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything, done anything wrong to the Jews, as yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one ought, no one has the right to hand me over to them. So I appeal to Caesar directly. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. We read that in Acts 25, 10, and 12, 10 to 12. So we now know that the book of Acts ended before Paul's trial, right? But before he leaves Caesarea, another ruler, Herod Agrippa II, hears his case and tells Festus, well, well, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar because clearly he's innocent. Acts 26, verse 32. And now, perhaps Paul hoped to uh, appealing to Caesar would finally put an end to his case, but unfortunately, as we, we have just read, it dragged it out even longer. Now, perhaps it was, you and I would think, maybe it's a strategic move on Paul's part to testify about Christ to a Roman leader, right? Having Caesar's court and the Roman justice, justice system as captive audience, he might have been able to, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It could have been to a, to a more powerful and influential audience. That might have been what he was planning all along. But in Acts 28, we find that Paul, once again, um, was house arrested by appealing to Caesar. Paul forced Festus to send him to Rome to await trial. When he finally arrived, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier who was his guard, Acts 26, 18. Here, Paul preached freely to the Jews in Rome for two years. And the scholars believe that this is where he wrote the book of Philippians because he references being in chains in Philippians 1, verse 12 and 13. And then the book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest. And we don't learn much more about the situation or this particular situation is in his other letters. And the scholars debate about whether or not Paul was ever released from house arrest. Some argue that, that his letters speak of this imprisonment in the past tense uh, and make reference to things that could only have occurred after his house arrest. Um, for example, in 2 Timothy, um, it is believed to have been written shortly after his death. He appears to reference a recent trip to Troas in 2 Timothy 4.13, which would have been impossible if he was already imprisoned in Caesarea uh, for more than two years, right? Whether or not Paul made a fourth missionary journey, we do not know. We, we discussed this last week that he might have gone to Spain after this time. Right? And this, of course, depends largely on whether or not he was imprisoned in Rome once or twice. All right. Um, Paul was killed. He was beheaded 
um, in Rome, and it is it is argued that his martyrdom gave gave rise, uh, further rise to the spreading of the gospel. Now, Paul is traditionally considered to be the author of 13 of the New Testament books. While Moses still holds the title of writing the most words of the Bible, traditionally, Paul wrote the most documents, right? Unless you count each individual psalm as a document, in which case David wins, right? Now, the books attributed to Paul um, were... As I mentioned last week, I think I did it as well. Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, or Philemon. Now these books, we call them books, but they were actually letters or epistles. Uh, many of which were written back to the churches that Paul planted or started um, and people he presumably encountered on his missionary journeys. We see that in the book of Acts. The letters references uh, many of the events recorded in Acts, which scholars have used to construct a more clear timeline of Paul's life and ministry. But not everyone agrees that Paul wrote all of those letters. So you have to really study that out. Uh, for example, most scholars, critical and conservative, believe that Paul didn't write uh, seven of them. Uh, Romans, Corinthians, uh, Galatians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and Philemon. But the remaining six letters have raised some questions, and scholars debate whether or not they can really be attributed to Paul. I'll let them fight over that. Uh, Colossians, for example. I was just, just going to say, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'll discuss that uh, at another time. Colossians makes some questionable references to uh, which Paul doesn't make anywhere else. He calls Jesus the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, and which aligns more with later Christian theology, like that which is found in John's gospel. So some have argued whether or not it was written by Paul or one of his followers after his death, maybe one of his followers that also read one of John's writings. Does that make sense? So Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, um, and Titus also have very different style than Paul's traditional writings, right? And this could simply mean that Paul had a different purpose in writing them or that Paul's writing style changed over the course of his ministry. But the epistles to Timothy and Titus also have very different vocabulary and even some theology that is slightly different than we see in other Pauline writings. So many Christians would be surprised to learn that these academic debates are even happening right now because these letters are all signed by Paul. But scholars argue that these epistles are actually what we call pseudodepigrapha, meaning that um, someone else wrote them, likely one of his students, but then asked Paul to review it, and then 
Paul would sign his name to it. Now, this is something that was commonly done. Um, if you studied under uh, a well-known uh, theologian, he would often either instruct you to write something or you would write it together or perhaps in this case after his death you would write something that you knew he believed or you've heard him teach and then ascribe his name to it so there's a whole bunch of arguments about who wrote what when and so on and i think these intentional arguments and arrangements is harmless um and maybe produced out of convenience or necessity. Um, but um, a student, for example, writing on behalf of a teacher with the approval of that teacher is, is or was commonplace. Now, the biggest debate was whether or not Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, by biggest debate, I mean it's been going on a long time because a lot of the theology found in the book of Hebrews uh, is also found in other Pauline books, right? Particularly the book of uh, Colossians, where the oneness of God is so strongly um, uh, taught. And of course, the book of Hebrews um, is very strong on the oneness of God as well. Almost all of the scholars agree that Paul did not write Hebrews. They, they, they think that it was written by one of his brilliant scholars, maybe Apollos or Barnabas, etc. Um, and the true biblical author remains unknown because once again, uh, in most of Paul's letters, Paul would say, I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, so on, so on, so forth. So, so we know he wrote that, right? Or uh, he, he dictated it. But in, in, in Hebrews, um, we, we have no such reference. However, the early church assumed the letter was written by Paul and even included it in the early collections of the writings. It was contested um, in the second and third centuries. And, but for 1,000 years or more, the church largely believed that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Why is that important? Why am I making a point of it? If you read the book of Hebrews, um, it, it, it is probably the most striking. I'm trying to turn there while I'm talking. It's probably the most striking book that talks to um, the work that Jesus Christ did. Um, on the cross. Um, let me let me let me just read the first couple of verses just to give you. And I'm reading from um, the I'm reading from the ESV version. It says, "Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He's appointed heir of all things, through whom, through whom also He created the world." And so, what we have here is uh, Paul establishing Jesus Christ as the Creator of the world. 
and, and he goes on and goes on and talk a lot about um, how through the person of Jesus Christ, uh, salvation is brought and how it refers back to the tabernacle plan and so on. And we have, again, a, a large body of work referring to uh, salvation ascribed to Paul through the book of um, the book of the Hebrews or the writer of the book of Hebrews, I should say. Um, I also mentioned earlier um, that uh, while the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how Paul died, um, there are numerous early church fathers who wrote that he was martyred, um, specifically that he was beheaded, probably by Emperor Nero, which would mean that it had to have been somewhere in the neighborhood or just before AD 68. In fact, Clement of Rome provided the earliest surviving record of Paul's death in his letter to the Corinthians, known as 1 Clement, where he mentions that Paul and Peter both were martyred. Also, in an apocryphal book, um, referred to as the Acts of Paul. I don't know if you guys have ever seen uh, the apocryphal works. I have... I have here a, book, a, bi a Bible that I, I picked up years ago, and uh, it includes the apocryphal books. And um, while I don't read from them regularly, I can tell you that um, they're interesting, and there are a lot of them, right? So uh, these are books, they're referred to as apocryphal books because they were not included in the New Testament canon. Uh, nor were they included in the Old Testament uh, as well, but they are considered to be semi-precious. They were not included because there may have been some conflict with, uh, with the rest or some disagreement with the rest of Scripture. And any book that did not agree with the other 65 books, or 66 books rather, they were excluded from the Bible. Okay? Um, uh, so, uh, the apocryphal work in the second century known as the Acts of Paul says that Nero had Paul decapitated and in and 200 AD, Tertullian wrote that Paul's death was like that of John the Baptist also who was decapitated. Other early Christian writers supported these claims and provided some additional detail like where it happened Rome, and where he was buried, a place called the Ostian Way at Rome. And finally, Paul's final remains. Where was he buried? Uh, in 2002, a group of archaeologists found a large marble sarcophagus near the location Jerome and Caius described, and on it was inscribed Paolo Apostolio Marto, which means, which means Paul the Apostle, the martyr, and that was written on it. Now, no one ever opened that sarcophagus, but using a probe and carbon dating, the archaeologists estimates that the remains inside were from the first or second century A.D., and then finally, the Vatican claims that these are, in fact, the remains of St. Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. I'm going to end there at 45 minutes.
Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us. Thank you.